Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 12 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simsville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 12. Irby et Orby. The astronomical, mechanical, and topographical difficulties resolved, finally came the question of finance. The sum required was far too great for any individual, or even any state, to provide the requisite millions. President Barbicane undertook, despite of the matter being a purely American affair, to render it one of universal interest, and to request the financial cooperation of all peoples. It was, he maintained, the right and the duty of the whole earth to interfere in the affairs of its satellite. The subscription opened at Baltimore extended properly to the whole world, Irby et Orby. This subscription was successful beyond all expectation, notwithstanding that it was a question not of lending but of giving the money. It was a purely disinterested operation in the strictest sense of the term, and offered not the slightest chance of profit. The effect, however, of Barbicane's communication was not confined to the frontiers of the United States. It crossed the Atlantic and Pacific, invading simultaneously Asia and Europe, Africa and Oceania. The observatories of the Union placed themselves in immediate communication with those of foreign countries. Some, such as those of Paris, Petersburg, Berlin, Stockholm, Hamburg, Malta, Lisbon, Benares, Madras, and others, transmitted their good wishes. The rest maintained a prudent silence, quietly awaiting the result. As for the observatory at Greenwich, seconded as it was by the twenty-two astronomical establishments of Great Britain, it spoke plainly enough. It boldly denied the possibility of success, and pronounced in favour of the theories of Captain Nicholl but this was nothing more than mere English jealousy. On the 8th of October, President Barbicane published a manifesto full of enthusiasm, in which he made an appeal to all persons of goodwill upon the face of the earth. This document, translated into all languages, met with immense success. Subscription lists were opened in all the principal cities of the Union, with a central office at the Baltimore Bank, 9 Baltimore Street. In addition, subscriptions were received at the following banks in the different states of the two continents. At Vienna, with S. M. de Rothschild, Petersburg at Stieglitz & Company, Paris, the Crédit Mobilier, Stockholm, Tati & Afferudsen, London, N. M. Rothschild & Son, Turin, Arjwin & Company, Berlin, Mendelssohn, Geneva, Lombard, Odier, and Company, Constantinople, the Ottoman Bank, Brussels, J. Lambert, Madrid, Daniel Weisweller, Amsterdam, Netherlands Credit Company, Rome, Torlonia and Company, Lisbon, Le Chesney, Copenhagen, Private Bank, Rio Janeiro, Ditto, Montevideo, Ditto, Valparaiso and Lima, Thomas La Chambre and Company, Mexico, Martin Duran and Company. Three days after the manifesto of President Barbicane, four millions of dollars were paid into the different towns of the Union. With such a balance, the gun club might begin operations at once. But some days later, advices were received to the effect that the foreign subscriptions were being eagerly taken up. Certain countries distinguished themselves by their liberality. 
others untied their purse-strings with less faculty, matter of temperament. Figures are, however, more eloquent than words, and here is the official statement of the sums which were paid in to the credit of the gun club at the close of the subscription. Russia paid in, as her contingent, the enormous sum of 368,733 rubles. No one need be surprised at this, who bears in mind the scientific taste of the Russians, and the impetus which they have given to astronomical studies, thanks to their numerous observatories. France began by deriding the pretensions of the Americans. The moon served as a pretext for a thousand stale puns and a score of ballads, in which bad taste contested the palm with ignorance. But as formerly the French paid before singing, so now they paid after having had their laugh, and they subscribed for a sum of 1,253,930 francs. At that price they had a right to enjoy themselves a little. Austria showed herself generous in the midst of her financial crisis. Her public contributions amounted to the sum of 216,000 florins, a perfect godsend. 52,000 rix dollars were the remittance of Sweden and Norway. The amount is large for the country, but it would undoubtedly have been considerably increased had the subscription been opened in Christiania simultaneously with that at Stockholm. For some reason or other, the Norwegians did not like to send their money to Sweden. Prussia, by a remittance of 250,000 thalers, testified her high approval of the enterprise. Turkey behaved generously, but she had a personal interest in the matter. The moon, in fact, regulates the cycle of her years and her fast of Ramadan. She could do no less than give 1,372,640 piastres, and she gave them with an eagerness which denoted, however, some pressure on the part of the government. Belgium distinguished herself among the second-rate states by a grant of 513,000 francs, about two centimes per head of her population. Holland and her colonies interested themselves to the extent of 110,000 florins, only demanding an allowance of 5% discount for paying ready money. Denmark, a little contracted in territory, gave nevertheless 9,000 ducats, proving her love for scientific experiments. The Germanic Confederation pledged itself to 34,285 florins. It was impossible to ask for more, besides they would not have given it. Though very much crippled, Italy found 200,000 lire in the pockets of her people. If she had had Venetia, she would have done better, but she had not. The states of the church thought that they could not send less than 7,040 Roman crowns, and Portugal carried her devotion to science as far as 30,000 cruzados. It was the widow's might, 86 piastres, but self-constituted empires are always rather short of money. 257 francs, this was the modest contribution of Switzerland to the American work. One must freely admit that she did not see the practical side of the matter. It did not seem to her that the mere dispatch of a shot to the moon could possibly establish any relation of affairs with her, and it did not seem prudent to her to embark her capital in so hazardous an enterprise. After all, perhaps she was right. As to Spain, she could not scrape together more than 110 reals. She gave as an excuse that she had her railways to finish. The truth is that science is not favorably regarded in that country. It is still in a backward state, and moreover, certain Spaniards, not by any means the least educated, did not form a correct estimate of the bulk of the projectile compared with that of the moon. They feared that it would disturb the established order of things. In that case it were better to keep aloof, which they did to the tune of some reals. There remained but England, and we know the contemptuous antipathy with which she received Barbicane's proposition. The English have but one soul for the whole twenty-six millions of inhabitants which Great Britain contains. They hinted that the enterprise of the gun club was contrary to the principle of non-intervention, and they did not subscribe a single farthing. 
At this intimation the Gunk Club merely shrugged its shoulders and returned to its great work. When South America, that is to say, Peru, Chile, Brazil, the provinces of La Plata and Colombia, had poured forth their quota into their hands, the sum of three hundred thousand dollars, it found itself in possession of a considerable capital, of which the following is a statement. United States subscriptions, four million dollars. Foreign subscriptions, one million four hundred forty-six thousand six hundred seventy-five dollars. Total, five million four hundred forty-six thousand six hundred seventy-five dollars. Such was the sum which the public poured into the treasury of the gun club. Let no one be surprised at the vastness of the amount. The work of casting, boring, masonry, the transport of workmen, their establishment in an almost uninhabited country, the construction of furnaces and workshops, the plant, the powder, the projectile, and incidental expenses would, according to the estimates, absorb nearly the whole. Certain cannon shots in the Federal War cost a thousand dollars apiece. This one of President Barbicane, unique in the annals of gunnery, might well cost five thousand times more. On the 20th of October, a contract was entered into with the manufactory at Cold Spring, near New York, which during the war had furnished the largest Parrot cast-iron guns. It was stipulated between the contracting parties that the manufactory of Cold Spring should engage to transport to Tampa Town, in southern Florida, the necessary materials for casting the Columbiad. The work was bound to be completed at latest by the 15th of October following, and the cannon delivered in good condition under penalty of a forfeit of $100 a day to the moment when the moon should again present herself under the same conditions, that is to say, in eighteen years and eleven days. The engagement of the workmen, their pay, and all the necessary details of the work devolved upon the Goldspring Company. This contract, executed in duplicate, was signed by Barbicane, president of the Gun Club, of the one part, and T. Murfison, director of the Cold Spring Manufactory, of the other, who thus executed the deed on behalf of their respective principals. End of chapter. Chapter 13 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 13 Stones Hill. When the decision was arrived at by the Gun Club, to the disparagement of Texas, every one in America, where reading is an universal acquirement, set to work to study the geography of Florida. Never before had there been such a sale for works like Bertram's Travels in Florida, Roman's Natural History of East and West Florida, William's Territory of Florida, and Cleland on the Cultivation of the Sugarcane in Florida it became necessary to issue fresh editions of these works. Barbicane had something better to do than to read. He desired to see things with his own eyes, and to mark the exact position of the proposed gun. So without a moment's loss of time, he placed at the disposal of the Cambridge Observatory the funds necessary for the construction of a telescope, and entered into negotiations with the House of Breadwill and Company of Albany, for the construction of an aluminium projectile of the required size. He then quitted Baltimore, accompanied by J. T. Maston, Major Elphinstone, and the manager of the Cold Spring Factory. On the following day the four fellow travellers arrived at New Orleans. There they immediately embarked on board the Tampico, a dispatch boat belonging to the Federal Navy, which the government had placed at their disposal and, getting up steam, the banks of the Louisiana speedily disappeared from sight. The passage was not long. Two days after starting, the Tampico 
having made four hundred and eighty miles, came in sight of the coast of Florida. On a nearer approach, Barbicane found himself in view of a low, flat country of somewhat barren aspect. After coasting along a series of creeks abounding in lobsters and oysters, the Tampico entered the bay of Espirito Santo, where she finally anchored in a small natural harbour formed by the embouchure of the river Hillisborough at 7 p.m. on the 22nd October. Our four passengers disembarked at once. "'Gentlemen,' said Barbicane, "'we have no time to lose. Tomorrow we must obtain horses and proceed to reconnoiter the country.' Barbicane had scarcely set his foot on shore when three thousand of the inhabitants of Tampa Town came forth to meet him, an honour due to the President who had signalised their country by his choice. Declining, however, every kind of ovation, Barbicane ensconced himself in a room at the Franklin Hotel. On the morrow, some of those small horses of the Spanish breed, full of vigour and of fire, stood snorting under his windows, but instead of four steeds there were fifty, together with their riders. Barbicane descended with his three fellow-travellers, and much astonished were they all to find themselves in the midst of such a cavalcade. He remarked that every horseman carried a carbine slung across his shoulders and pistols in his holsters. On expressing his surprise at these preparations, he was speedily enlightened by a young Floridian, who quietly said, "'Sir, there are Seminoles there.' "'What do you mean by Seminoles?' "'Savages who scour the prairies. We thought it best, therefore, to escort you on your road.' Pooh! cried J. T. Maston, mounting his steed. "'All right,' said the Floridian. "'But it is true enough, nevertheless.' "'Gentlemen,' answered Barbicane, "'I thank you for your kind attention, but it is time to be off.' It was five a.m. when Barbicane and his party, quitting Tampa Town, made their way along the coast in the direction of Alafia Creek. This little river falls into Hillisborough Bay, twelve miles above Tampa Town. Barbicane and his escort coasted along its right bank to the eastward. Soon the waves of the bay disappeared behind a bend of rising ground, and the Floridian Champagne alone offered itself to view. Florida, discovered on Palm Sunday in 1512 by Juan Ponce de Leon, was originally named Pascia Florida. It little deserved that designation with its dry and parched coasts, but after some few miles of tract the nature of the soil gradually changes, and the country shows itself worthy of the name. Cultivated plains soon appear, where are united all the productions of the northern and tropical floras, terminating in prairies abounding with pineapples and yams, tobacco, rice, cotton plants, and sugar canes, which extend beyond reach of sight, flinging their riches broadcast with careless prodigality. Barbicane appeared highly pleased on observing the progressive elevation of the land, and in answer to a question of J. T. Maston, replied, "'My worthy friend, we cannot do better than sink our Columbiad in these high grounds.' "'To get nearer to the moon, perhaps?' said the secretary of the gun-club. "'Not exactly,' replied Barbicane, smiling. "'Do you not see that amongst these elevated plateaus we shall have a much easier work of it?' No struggles with the water-springs, which will save us long and expensive tubings, and we shall be working in daylight instead of down a deep and narrow well. Our business, then, is to open our trenches upon ground some hundreds of yards above the level of the sea. "'You are right, sir,' struck in Murchison, the engineer, "'and, if I mistake not, we shall ere long find a suitable spot for our purpose.' "'I wish we were at the first stroke of the pickaxe,' said the President. "'And I wish we were at the last!' cried J. T. Maston. About ten a.m. the little band had crossed a dozen miles. To fertile plains succeeded a region of forests. There perfumes of the most varied kinds mingled together in tropical perfusion. These almost impenetrable forests were composed of pomegranates, orange trees, citrons, figs, olives, apricots, bananas, huge vines, whose blossoms and fruits rivaled each other in color and perfume. 
beneath the odorous shade of these magnificent trees fluttered and warbled a little world of brilliantly plumaged birds. J.T. Maston and the Major could not repress their admiration on finding themselves in presence of the glorious beauties of this wealth of nature. President Barbicane, however, less sensitive to these wonders, was in haste to press forward. The very luxuriance of the country was displeasing to him. They hastened onwards, therefore, and were compelled to ford several rivers, not without danger, for they were infested with huge alligators from fifteen to eighteen feet long. Maston courageously menaced them with his steel hook, but he only succeeded in frightening some pelicans and teal, while tall flamingos stared stupidly at the party. At length these denizens of the swamps disappeared in their turn. Smaller trees became thinly scattered amongst less dense thickets. A few isolated groups detached in the midst of endless plains over which ranged herds of startled deer. "'At last!' cried Barbicane, rising in his stirrups. "'Here we are at the region of pines.' "'Yes, and of savages, too,' replied the Major. In fact, some Seminoles had just come in sight upon their horizon. They rode violently backwards and forwards on their fleet horses, brandishing their spears or discharging their guns with a dull report. These hostile demonstrations, however, had no effect upon Barbicane and his companions. They were then occupying the centre of a rocky plain, which the sun scorched with its parching rays. This was formed by a considerable elevation of the soil, which seemed to offer to the members of the gun-club all the conditions requisite for the construction of their columbiad. "'Halt!' said Barbicane, reining up. "'Has this place any local appellation?' "'It's called Stones Hill,' replied one of the Floridians. Barbicane, without saying a word, dismounted, seized his instruments, and began to note his position with extreme exactness. The little band, drawn up in rear, watched his proceedings in profound silence. At this moment the sun passed the meridian. Barbicane, after a few moments, rapidly wrote down the result of his observations, and said, "'This spot is situated eighteen hundred feet above the level of the sea, in twenty-seven degrees seven minutes north latitude, and five degrees seven minutes west longitude of the meridian of Washington.' It appears to me by its rocky and barren character to offer all the conditions requisite for our experiment. On that plain will be raised our magazines, workshops, furnaces, and workmen huts. And here, from this very spot, said he, stamping his foot on the summit of Stones Hill, hence shall our projectile take its flight into the regions of the solar world. End of chapter. Chapter 14 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 14 Pickaxe and Trowel. The same evening Barbicane and his companions returned to Tampa Town, and Murchison, the engineer, re-embarked on board the Tampico for New Orleans. His object was to enlist an army of workmen, and to collect together the greater part of the materials. The members of the gun club remained at Tampa Town for the purpose of setting on foot the preliminary works by the aid of the people of the country. Eight days after its departure, the Tampico returned into the Bay of Espirito Santo, with a whole flotilla of steamboats. Murchison had succeeded in assembling together fifteen hundred artisans. Attracted by the high pay and considerable bounties offered by the gun club, he had enlisted a choice legion of stokers, iron founders, lime burners, miners, brick makers, and artisans of every trade, without distinction of color. As many of these people brought their families with them, their departure resembled a perfect emigration. On the 31st October, at ten o'clock in the morning, the troop disembarked on the quays of Tampa Town, 
and one may imagine the activity which pervaded that little town, whose population was thus doubled in a single day. During the first few days they were busy discharging the cargo brought by the flotilla, the machines and the rations, as well as a large number of huts constructed of iron plates, separately pieced and numbered. At the same period Barbicane laid the first sleepers of a railway fifteen miles in length, intended to unite Stones Hill with Tampa Town. On the 1st of November, Barbicane quitted Tampa Town with a detachment of workmen, and on the following day the whole town of huts was erected round Stones Hill. This they enclosed with palisades, and in respect of energy and activity, it might have shortly been mistaken for one of the great cities of the Union. Everything was placed under a complete system of discipline, and the works were commenced in most perfect order. The nature of the soil having been carefully examined, by means of repeated borings, the work of excavation was fixed for the 4th of November. On that day Barbicane called together his foremen and addressed them as follows. You are well aware, my friends, of the object with which I have assembled you together in this wild part of Florida. Our business is to construct a cannon measuring nine feet in its interior diameter, six feet thick, and with a stone revetment of nineteen and a half feet in thickness. We have, therefore, a well of sixty feet in diameter to dig down to a depth of nine hundred feet. This great work must be completed within eight months, so you have two million five hundred forty-three thousand four hundred cubic feet of earth to excavate in two hundred fifty-five days. That is to say, in round numbers, two thousand cubic feet per day. That which would present no difficulty to a thousand navvies working in open country will be, of course, more troublesome in a comparatively confined space. However, the thing must be done, and I reckon for its accomplishment upon your courage as much as upon your skill. At eight o'clock in the morning the first stroke of the pickaxe was struck upon the soil of Florida, and from that moment that prince of tools was never inactive for one moment in the hands of the excavators. The gangs relieved each other every three hours. On the 4th of November fifty workmen commenced digging. In the very centre of the enclosed space on the summit of Stones Hill, a circular hole sixty feet in diameter. The pickaxe first struck upon a kind of black earth, six inches in thickness, which was speedily disposed of. To this earth succeeded two feet of fine sand, which was carefully laid aside as being valuable for serving for the casting of the inner mould. After the sand appeared some compact white clay, resembling the chalk of Great Britain, which extended down to a depth of four feet. Then the iron of the picks struck upon the hard bed of the soil, a kind of rock formed of petrified shells, very dry, very solid, and which the picks could with difficulty penetrate. At this point the excavation exhibited a depth of six feet and a half, and the work of the masonry was begun. At the bottom of this excavation they constructed a wheel of oak, a kind of circle strongly bolted together, and of immense strength. The centre of this wooden disc was hollowed out to a diameter equal to the exterior diameter of the Columbiad. Upon this wheel rested the first layers of the masonry, the stones of which were bound together by hydraulic cement, with irresistible tenacity. The workmen, after laying the stones from the circumference to the centre, were thus enclosed within a kind of well twenty-one feet in diameter. When this work was accomplished, the miners resumed their picks and cut away the rock from underneath the wheel itself, taking care to support it as they advanced upon blocks of great thickness. At every two feet which the hole gained in depth, they successively withdrew the blocks. The wheel then sank little by little, and with it the massive ring of masonry, on the upper bed of which the masons laboured incessantly, always reserving some vent-holes to permit the escape of gas during the operation of casting. This kind of work required on the part of the workmen extreme nicety and minute attention. 
More than one, in digging underneath the wheel, was dangerously injured by the splinters of stone, but their ardour never relaxed, night or day. By day they worked under the rays of the scorching sun, by night under the gleam of the electric light. The sounds of the picks against the rock, the bursting of mines, the grinding of the machines, the wreaths of smoke scattered through the air, traced around Stones Hill a circle of terror which the herds of buffaloes and the war-parties of the Seminoles never ventured to pass. Nevertheless, the works advanced regularly, as the steam-cranes actively removed the rubbish. Of unexpected obstacles there was little account, and with regard to foreseen difficulties, they were speedily disposed of. At the expiration of the first month the well had attained the depth assigned for that lapse of time, that is, 112 feet. This depth was doubled in December and trebled in January. During the month of February the workmen had to contend with a sheet of water which made its way right across the outer soil. It became necessary to employ very powerful pumps and compressed engines to drain it off, so as to close up the orifice from whence it issued, just as one stops a leak on board ship. They at last succeeded in getting the upper hand of these untoward streams, only, in consequence of the loosening of the soil, the wheel partly gave way, and a slight partial settlement ensued. This accident cost the life of several workmen. No fresh occurrence thenceforward arrested the progress of the operation, and on the 10th of June, twenty days before the expiration of the period fixed by Barbicane, the well, lined throughout with its facing of stone, had attained the depth of nine hundred feet. At the bottom the masonry rested upon a massive block measuring thirty feet in thickness, whilst on the upper portion it was level with the surrounding soil. President Barbicane and the members of the Gun Club warmly congratulated their engineer Murchison. The Cyclopean work had been accomplished with extraordinary rapidity. During these eight months Barbicane never quitted Stones Hill for a single instant. Keeping ever close by the work of excavation, he busied himself incessantly with the welfare and health of his workpeople, and was singularly fortunate in warding off the epidemics common to large communities of men, and so disastrous in those regions of the globe which are exposed to the influences of tropical climates. Many workmen, it is true, paid with their lives for the rashness inherent in these dangerous labors, but these mishaps are impossible to be avoided, and they are classed amongst details with which the Americans trouble themselves but little. They have in fact more regard for human nature in general than for the individual in particular. Nevertheless, Barbicane professed opposite principles to these, and put them in force at every opportunity. So, thanks to his care, his intelligence, his useful intervention in all difficulties, his prodigious and humane sagacity, the average of accidents did not exceed that of transatlantic countries noted for their excessive precautions, France, for instance, among others, where they reckon about one accident for every 200,000 francs of work. End of chapter. Chapter 15 of From the Earth to the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 15 The Fete of the Casting During the eight months which were employed in the work of excavation, the preparatory works of the casting had been carried on simultaneously with extreme rapidity. A stranger arriving at Stones Hill would have been surprised at the spectacle offered to his view. At six hundred yards from the well, and circularly arranged around it as a central point, rose twelve hundred reverberating ovens, each six feet in diameter, and separated from each other by an interval of three feet. The circumference occupied by these twelve hundred ovens presented a length of two miles. 
being all constructed on the same plan, each with its high quadrangular chimney, they produced a most singular effect. It will be remembered that on the third meeting the committee had decided to use cast iron for the Columbiad, and in particular the white description. This metal, in fact, is the most tenacious, the most ductile, and the most malleable, and consequently suitable for all moulding operations, and when smelted with pit-coal, is of superior quality for all engineering works requiring great resisting power, such as cannon, steam-boilers, hydraulic presses, and the like. Cast iron, however, if subjected to only one single fusion, is rarely sufficiently homogeneous, and it requires a second fusion completely to refine it by dispossessing it of its last earthly deposits. So before being forwarded to Tampa Town, the iron ore, molten in the great furnaces of Cold Spring, and brought into contact with coal and silicium heated to a high temperature, was carburized and transformed into cast iron. After this first operation, the metal was sent on to Stones Hill. They had, however, to deal with 136 million pounds of iron, a quantity far too costly to send by railway. The cost of transport would have been double that of material. It appeared preferable to freight vessels at New York and to load them with the iron in bars. This, however, required not less than 68 vessels of 1,000 tons, a veritable fleet, which, quitting New York on the 3rd of May, on the 10th of the same month ascended the bay of Espirito Santo, and discharged their cargoes, without dues, in the port at Tampa Town. Thence the iron was transported by rail to Stones Hill, and about the middle of May this enormous mass of metal was delivered at its destination. It will be easily understood that 1,200 furnaces were not too many to melt simultaneously these 60,000 tons of iron. Each of these furnaces contained nearly 140,000 pounds weight of metal. They were all built after the model of those which served for the casting of the Rodman gun. They were trapezoidal in shape, with a high elliptical arch. These furnaces, constructed of fireproof brick, were especially adapted for burning pit coal, with a flat bottom upon which the iron bars were laid. This bottom, inclined at an angle of twenty-five degrees, allowed the metal to flow into the receiving troughs, and the twelve hundred converging trenches carried the molten metal down to the central well. The day following that on which the works of the masonry and boring had been completed, Barbicane set to work upon the central mold. His object now was to raise within the center of the well, and with a coincident axis, a cylinder nine hundred feet high and nine feet in diameter, which should exactly fill up the space reserved for the bore of the Columbiad. This cylinder was composed of a mixture of clay and sand, with the addition of a little hay and straw. The space left between the mold and the masonry was intended to be filled up by the molten metal, which would thus form the walls six feet in thickness. This cylinder, in order to maintain its equilibrium, had to be bound by iron bands, and firmly fixed at certain intervals by cross-clamps fastened into the stone lining. After the castings, these would be buried in the block of metal, leaving no external projection. This operation was completed on the 8th of July, and the run of the metal was fixed for the following day. "'The fed of the casting will be a grand ceremony,' said J. T. Maston to his friend Barbicane. "'Undoubtedly,' said Barbicane, "'but it will not be a public fete. "'What, will you not open the gates of the enclosure to all comers?' "'I must be very careful, Maston. "'The casting of the Columbiad is an extremely delicate, "'not to say a dangerous operation, "'and I should prefer its being done privately. "'At the discharge of the projectile, a fete, if you like. "'Till then, no.' "'The President was right. "'The operation involved unforeseen dangers, "'which a great influx of spectators would have hindered him from averting.' It was necessary to preserve complete freedom of movement. No one was admitted within the enclosure except the delegation of members of the gun club, 
who had made the voyage to Tampa Town. Among these was the brisk Billsby, Tom Hunter, Colonel Blomsberry, Major Elphinstone, General Morgan, and the rest of the lot to whom the casting of the Columbiad was a matter of personal interest. J.T. Maston became their cicerone. He omitted no point of detail. He conducted them throughout the magazines, workshops, through the midst of the engines, and compelled them to visit the whole twelve hundred furnaces one after the other. At the end of the twelve hundredth visit they were pretty well knocked up. The casting was to take place at twelve o'clock precisely. The previous evening each furnace had been charged with one hundred fourteen thousand pounds weight of metal in bars disposed crossways to each other, so as to allow the hot air to circulate freely between them. At daybreak the twelve hundred chimneys vomited their torrents of flame into the air, and the ground was agitated with dull tremblings. As many pounds of metal as there were to cast, so many pounds of coal were there to burn. Thus there were sixty-eight thousand tons of coal which projected in the face of the sun a thick curtain of smoke. The heat soon became insupportable within the circle of furnaces, the rumbling of which resembled the rolling of thunder. The powerful ventilators added their continuous blasts, and saturated with oxygen the glowing plates. The operation, to be successful, required to be conducted with great rapidity. On a signal given by a cannon shot, each furnace was to give vent to the molten iron and completely to empty itself. These arrangements made, foremen and workmen waited the preconcerted moment with an impatience mingled with a certain amount of emotion. Not a soul remained within the enclosure. Each superintendent took his post by the aperture of the run. Barbicane and his colleagues, perched on a neighboring eminence, assisted at the operation. In front of them was a piece of artillery ready to give fire on signal from the engineer. Some minutes before midday the first driblets of metal began to flow. The reservoirs filled little by little, and by the time that the whole melting was completely accomplished, it was kept in abeyance for a few minutes in order to facilitate the separation of foreign substances. Twelve o'clock struck. A gunshot suddenly peeled forth and shot its flame into the air. Twelve hundred melting troughs were simultaneously opened, and twelve hundred fiery serpents crept towards the central well, unrolling their incandescent curves. There, down they plunged with a terrific noise into a depth of nine hundred feet. It was an exciting and a magnificent spectacle. The ground trembled, while these molten waves, launching into the sky their wreaths of smoke, evaporated the moisture of the mold and hurled it upwards through the vent holes of the stone lining in the form of dense vapor clouds. These artificial clouds unrolled their thick spirals to a height of a thousand yards into the air. A savage, wandering somewhere beyond the limits of the horizon, might have believed that some new crater was forming in the bosom of Florida, although there was neither any eruption, nor typhoon, nor storm, nor struggle of the elements, nor any of those terrible phenomena which nature is capable of producing. No. It was man alone who had produced these reddish vapors, these gigantic flames worthy of a volcano itself, these tremendous vibrations resembling the shock of an earthquake, these reverberations rivaling those of hurricanes and storms, and it was his hand which precipitated into an abyss, dug by himself, a whole Niagara of molten metal. End of chapter Chapter 16 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 16 The Columbiad. Had the casting succeeded? They were reduced to mere conjecture. There was indeed every reason to expect success, 
since the mould had absorbed the entire mass of the molten metal, still some considerable time must elapse before they could arrive at any certainty upon the matter. The patience of the members of the gun club was sorely tried during this period of time, but they could do nothing. J.T. Maston escaped roasting by a miracle. Fifteen days after the casting, an immense column of smoke was still rising in the open sky, and the ground burnt the soles of the feet within a radius of two hundred feet round the summit of Stones Hill. It was impossible to approach nearer. All they could do was to wait with what patience they might. "'Here we are at the 10th August!' exclaimed J.T. Maston one morning. "'Only four months to the 1st of December! We shall never be ready in time!' Barbicane said nothing, but his silence covered serious irritation. However, daily observations revealed a certain change going on in the state of the ground. About the 15th August, the vapors ejected had sensibly diminished in intensity and thickness. Some days afterwards, the earth exhaled only a slight puff of smoke, the last breath of the monster enclosed within its circle of stone. Little by little, the belt of heat contracted, until on the 22nd August, Barbicane, his colleagues, and the engineer were enabled to set foot on the iron sheet which lay level upon the summit of Stones Hill. "'At last!' exclaimed the president of the gun-club, with an immense sigh of relief. The work was resumed the same day. They proceeded at once to extract the interior mould for the purpose of clearing out the boring of the piece. Pickaxes and boring irons were set to work without intermission. The clayey and sandy soils had acquired extreme hardness under the action of the heat, but by the aid of the machines the rubbish on being dug out was rapidly carted away on railway wagons, and such was the ardour of the work so persuasive the arguments of Barbicane's dollars, that by the 3rd of September all traces of the mould had entirely disappeared. Immediately the operation of boring was commenced, and by the aid of powerful machines, a few weeks later, the inner surface of the immense tube had been rendered perfectly cylindrical, and the bore of the piece had acquired a thorough polish. At length, on the 22nd of September, Less than a twelve-month after Barbicane's original proposition, the enormous weapon, accurately bored and exactly vertically pointed, was ready for work. There was only the moon now to wait for, and they were pretty sure that she would not fail in the rendezvous. The ecstasy of J. T. Maston knew no bounds, and he narrowly escaped a frightful fall while staring down the tube, but for the strong hand of Colonel Blomsberry, the worthy secretary, like a modern Erostratus, would have found his death in the depths of the Columbiad. The cannon was then finished. There was no possible doubt as to its perfect completion. So on the 6th of October, Captain Nicholl opened an account between himself and President Barbicane, in which he debited himself to the latter in the sum of $2,000. One may believe that the captain's wrath was increased to its highest point, and must have made him seriously ill. However, he had still three bets of three, four, and five thousand dollars, respectively, and if he gained two out of these, his position would not be very bad. But the money question did not enter into his calculations. It was the success of his rival in casting a cannon against which iron plates sixty feet thick would have been ineffectual that dealt him a terrible blow. After the 23rd of September, the enclosure of Stones Hill was thrown open to the public, and it will be easily imagined what was the concourse of visitors to this spot. There was an incessant flow of people to and from Tampa Town and the place, which resembled a procession, or rather, in fact, a pilgrimage. It was already clear to be seen that, on the day of the experiment itself, the aggregate of spectators would be counted by millions— for they were already arriving from all parts of the earth upon this narrow strip of promontory. Europe was emigrating to America. Up to that time, however, it must be confessed, the curiosity of the numerous comers was but scantily gratified. Most had counted upon witnessing the spectacle of the casting, and they were treated to nothing but smoke. 
This was sorry food for hungry eyes, but Barbicane would admit no one to that operation. Then ensued grumbling, discontent, murmurs. They blamed the president, taxed him with dictatorial conduct. His proceedings were declared un-American. There was very nearly a riot round Stones Hill, but Barbicane remained inflexible. When, however, the Columbiad was entirely finished, this state of closed doors could no longer be maintained. Besides, it would have been bad taste, and even imprudence, to affront the public feeling. Barbicane, therefore, opened the enclosure to all comers, but, true to his practical disposition, he determined to coin money out of the public curiosity. It was something, indeed, to be enabled to contemplate this immense Columbiad, but to descend into its depths, this seemed to the Americans the ne plus ultra of earthly felicity. Consequently, there was not one curious spectator who was not willing to give himself the treat of visiting the interior of this metallic abyss. Baskets suspended from steam cranes permitted them to satisfy their curiosity. There was a perfect mania. Women, children, old men all made it a point of duty to penetrate the mysteries of the colossal gun. The fare for the descent was fixed at five dollars per head, and despite this high charge, during the two months which preceded the experiment, the influx of visitors enabled the gun club to pocket nearly five hundred thousand dollars. It is needless to say that the first visitors of the Columbiad were the members of the gun club. This privilege was justly reserved for that illustrious body. The ceremony took place on the 25th September. A basket of honor took down the President, J.T. Maston, Major Elphinstone, General Morgan, Colonel Blomsbury, and other members of the club, to the number of ten in all. How hot it was at the bottom of that long tube of metal! They were half suffocated. But what delight! What ecstasy! A table had been laid with six covers on the massive stone which formed the bottom of the Columbiad, and lighted by a jet of electric light resembling that of day itself. Numerous exquisite dishes, which seemed to descend from heaven, were placed successively before the guests, and the richest wines of France flowed in profusion during this splendid repast, served nine hundred feet beneath the surface of the earth. The festival was animated, not to say somewhat noisy. Toasts flew backwards and forwards. They drank to the earth and to her satellite to the gun-club, the Union, the Moon, Diana, Phoebe, Selene, the peaceful courier of the night. All the hurrahs carried upwards upon the sonorous waves of the immense acoustic tube arrived with the sound of thunder at its mouth, and the multitude ranged round Stones Hill heartily united their shouts with those of the ten revellers hidden from view at the bottom of the gigantic Columbiad. J. T. Maston was no longer master of himself. Whether he shouted or gesticulated, ate or drank most, would be a difficult matter to determine. At all events, he would not have given his place up for an empire, not even if the cannon, loaded, primed, and fired at that very moment, were to blow him to pieces into the planetary world. End of chapter Chapter 17 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 17 A Telegraphic Dispatch. The great works undertaken by the Gun Club had now virtually come to an end, and two months still remained before the day for the discharge of the shot to the moon. To the general impatience these two months appeared as long as years. Hitherto the smallest details of the operation had been daily chronicled by the journals, which the public devoured with eager eyes. Just at this moment a circumstance, the most unexpected, the most extraordinary and incredible, occurred to rouse afresh their panting spirits, and to throw every mind into a state of the most violent excitement. One day, 
the 30th September, at 3.47 p.m., a telegram transmitted by cable from Valentia, Ireland, to Newfoundland and the American mainland, arrived at the address of President Barbicane. The President tore open the envelope, read the dispatch, and despite his remarkable powers of self-control, his lips turned pale and his eyes grew dim on reading the twenty words of this telegram. Here is the text of the dispatch, which figures now in the archives of the Gun Club. France, Paris, 30 September, 4 a.m. Barbicane, Tampa Town, Florida, United States. Substitute for your spherical shell a cylindro-conical projectile. I shall go inside. Shall arrive by steamer Atlanta. Michel Ardin. End of chapter. Chapter 18 of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter 18. The Passenger of the Atlanta. If this astounding news, instead of flying through the electric wires, had simply arrived by post in the ordinary sealed envelope, Barbicane would not have hesitated a moment. He would have held his tongue about it, both as a measure of prudence and in order not to have to reconsider his plans. This telegram might be a cover for some jest, especially as it came from a Frenchman. What human being would ever have conceived the idea of such a journey? And if such a person really existed, he must be an idiot, whom one would shut up in a lunatic ward rather than within the walls of the projectile. The contents of the dispatch, however, speedily became known, for the telegraphic officials possessed but little discretion, and Michel Ardan's proposition ran at once throughout the several states of the Union— Barbicane had, therefore, no further motive for keeping silence. Consequently, he called together such of his colleagues as were at the moment in Tampa Town, and without any expression of his own opinions, simply read to them the laconic text itself. It was received with every possible variety of expressions of doubt, incredulity, and derision from everyone, with the exception of J. T. Maston, who exclaimed, "'It is a grand idea, however!' When Barbicane originally proposed to send a shot to the moon, everyone looked upon the enterprise as simple and practicable enough, a mere question of gunnery. But when a person, professing to be a reasonable being, offered to take passage within the projectile, the whole thing became a farce, or in plainer language, a humbug. One question, however, remained. Did such a being exist? This telegram flashed across the depths of the Atlantic. The designation of the vessel on board which he was to take his passage, the date assigned for his speedy arrival, all combined to impart a certain character of reality to the proposal. They must get some clearer notion of the matter. Scattered groups of inquirers at length condensed themselves into a compact crowd, which made straight for the residence of President Barbicane. That worthy individual was keeping quiet with the intention of watching events as they arose. But he had forgotten to take into account the public impatience, and it was with no pleasant countenance that he watched the population of Tampa Town gathering under his windows. The murmurs and vociferations below presently obliged him to appear. He came forward, therefore, and on silence being procured, a citizen put point-blank to him the following question. Is the person mentioned in the telegram, under the name of Michel Ardin, on his way here, yes or no? Gentlemen, replied Barbicane, I know no more than you do. We must know, roared the impatient voices. Time will show, calmly replied the President. Time has no business to keep a whole country in suspense, replied the orator. Have you altered the plans of the projectile according to the request of the telegram? 
Not yet, gentlemen, but you are right. We must have better information to go by. The telegraph must complete its information. To the telegraph, roared the crowd. Barbicane descended, and heading the immense assemblage, led the way to the telegraph office. A few minutes later a telegram was dispatched to the secretary of the underwriters at Liverpool, requesting answers to the following queries. About the ship Atlanta, when did she leave Europe? Had she on board a Frenchman named Michel Ardin? Two hours afterwards Barbicane received information too exact to leave room for the smallest remaining doubt. The steamer Atlanta from Liverpool put to sea on the 2nd October, bound for Tampa Town, having on board a Frenchman born on the list of passengers by the name of Michel Ardin. That very evening he wrote to the house of Breadwell and Company, requesting them to suspend the casting of the projectile until the receipt of further orders. On the 20th October, at 9 a.m., the semaphores of the Bahama Canal signaled a thick smoke on the horizon. Two hours later a large steamer exchanged signals with them. The name of the Atlanta flew at once over Tampa Town. At four o'clock the English vessel entered the bay of Espirito Santo. At five it crossed the passage of Hillisborough Bay at full steam. At six she cast anchor at Port Tampa. The anchor had scarcely caught the sandy bottom when five hundred boats surrounded the Atlanta, and the steamer was taken by assault. Barbicane was the first to set foot on deck, and in a voice of which he vainly tried to conceal the emotion, called, "'Michel Ardin! Here!' replied an individual, perched on the poop. Barbicane, with arms crossed, looked fixedly at the passenger of the Atlanta. He was a man of about forty-two years of age, of large build, but slightly round-shouldered. His massive head momentarily shook a shock of reddish hair, which resembled a lion's mane. His face was short, with a broad forehead, and furnished with a moustache as bristly as a cat's, and little patches of yellowish whisker upon full cheeks. Round, wildish eyes, slightly nearsighted, completed a physiognomy essentially feline. His nose was firmly shaped, his mouth particularly sweet in expression, high forehead, intelligent and furrowed with wrinkles like a newly ploughed field. The body was powerfully developed and firmly fixed upon long legs. Muscular arms and a general air of decision gave him the appearance of a hearty, jolly companion. He was dressed in a suit of ample dimensions, loose neckerchief, open shirt-collar, disclosing a robust neck. His cuffs were invariably unbuttoned, through which appeared a pair of red hands. On the bridge of the steamer, in the midst of the crowd, he bustled to and fro, never still for a moment, dragging his anchors, as the sailors say, gesticulating, making free with everybody, biting his nails with nervous avidity. He was one of those originals which nature sometimes invents in the freak of a moment, and of which she then breaks the mould. Amongst other peculiarities, this curiosity gave himself out for a sublime ignoramus, like Shakespeare, and professed supreme contempt for all scientific men. Those fellows, as he called them, are only fit to mark the points while we play the game. He was, in fact, a thorough bohemian, adventurous, but not an adventurer, a hare-brained fellow, a kind of Icarus, only possessing relays of wings. For the rest, he was ever in scrapes, ending invariably by falling on his feet, like those little pith figures which they sell for children's toys. In two words his motto was, I have my opinions, and the love of the impossible constituted his ruling passion. Such was the passenger of the Atlanta, always excitable, as if boiling under the action of some internal fire by the character of his physical organization. If ever two individuals offered a striking contrast to each other, these were certainly Michel Ardin and the Yankee Barbicane, both, moreover, being equally enterprising and daring, each in his own way. The scrutiny which the president of the gun club had instituted regarding this new rival 
was quickly interrupted by the shouts and hurrahs of the crowd. The cries became at last so uproarious, and the popular enthusiasm assumed so personal a form, that Michel Ardin, after having shaken hands some thousands of times, at the imminent risk of leaving his fingers behind him, was fain at last to make a bolt for his cabin. Barbicane followed him without uttering a word. "'You are Barbicane, I suppose?' said Michel Ardin, in a tone of voice, in which he would have addressed a friend of twenty years' standing. "'Yes,' replied the President of the G.C. "'All right. How do you do, Barbicane? How are you getting on? Pretty well? That's right.' "'So,' said Barbicane, without further preliminary, "'you are quite determined to go.' quite decided. Nothing will stop you. Nothing. Have you modified your projectile according to my telegram? I waited for your arrival, but, asked Barbicane again, have you carefully reflected? Reflected? Have I any time to spare? I find an opportunity of making a tour in the moon, and I mean to profit by it. There is the whole gist of the matter." Barbicane looked hard at this man who spoke so lightly of his project, with such complete absence of anxiety. "'But at least,' said he, "'you have some plans, some means of carrying your project into execution.' "'Excellent, my dear Barbicane. Only permit me to offer one remark. My wish is to tell my story once for all, to everybody, and then to have done with it. Then there will be no need for recapitulation.' So, if you have no objection, assemble your friends, colleagues, the whole town, all Florida, all America, if you like, and tomorrow I shall be ready to explain my plans and answer any objections whatever that may be advanced. You may rest assured I shall wait without stirring. Will that suit you? All right, replied Barbicane. So saying, the President left the cabin and informed the crowd of the proposal of Michel Ardin. His words were received with clappings of hands and shouts of joy. They had removed all difficulties. Tomorrow every one would contemplate at his ease this European hero. However, some of the spectators, more infatuated than the rest, would not leave the deck of the Atlanta. They passed the night on board. Amongst others, J.T. Maston got his hook fixed in the combing of the poop, and it pretty nearly required the capstan to get it out again. "'He is a hero! A hero!' he cried, a theme of which he was never tired of ringing the changes. "'And we are only like weak, silly women compared with this European!' As to the President, after having suggested to the visitors it was time to retire, he re-entered the passenger's cabin, and remained there till the bell of the steamer made it midnight. But then the two rivals in popularity shook hands heartily, and parted on terms of intimate friendship." End of chapter. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.